what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I think a lot about belonging. In fact, belonging is an ongoing conversation between our community advocate, Shannon, and I. We talk about belonging because one of the biggest concerns that prospective network members and even new members have is whether they belong. They ask if there are people like them in the community, people with a similar business model, people from the same industry, people who come from the same background they have. And on one hand, these questions are pretty easy to answer. Typically, we can say, yes, there are people like you here. But on the other hand, a sense of belonging isn't just a factor of who you're in proximity with. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that makes business make sense for small business owners. A sense of belonging isn't situational, it's intrinsic. And if through trauma, oppression, toxic relationships, injustice, or cruelty, you've lost your sense of belonging, it doesn't matter how much the people around you are like you, you can still feel separate and other. Belonging isn't a switch you can turn on and off, at least not in my experience. And one of the threads of that ongoing conversation that Shannon and I have about belonging is indeed about my experience and about how her experience is pretty different. A couple of years ago, we reached the joint revelation that we have different default settings when it comes to belonging. When she walks in a room, she assumes she belongs. And in an uncommonly positive result of confirmation bias, she typically starts to confirm her belonging in all sorts of social and situational ways. Now, when I walk in a room of people, which I try to avoid at all costs, I assume I don't belong. I assume I'm missing the memo on something everyone else has known for all time. I feel cut off and I often shut down. My own confirmation bias starts to pick out all the reasons why I do not belong in that room with those people. And while that probably sounds pretty awful, and it is, I believe that it's also caused me to build a strength in leadership. As a leader, I interact with a group in a different way. It's understood that I am on the outside to a degree, not belonging in the same way to the group as others. And similarly, being on the outside gives me a better perspective on the group and their challenges. So it works out pretty well. Sebene Selassie writes about a similar phenomenon in her extremely excellent book, You Belong. Sebene examines the benefits of living in the margins of society. She writes, quote, If we imagine each circle is made up of people who are facing inwards, the closer you are to the center, the less you see. Conversely, if you are in the outermost circles, you have the greatest perspective. Are there real issues with being in the margins of society? Absolutely. Lack of access to resources and lack of participation in decision making chief among them. But operating on the outside gives us perspective we can use to do real good in the world. Now, I still struggle with belonging. I struggle with a constant fear of unfamiliar situations and people, along with the fear of plenty of familiar situations and people, something Laura James describes in her book, Odd Girl Out. 
but I can also see my outsider perspective as a strength and one that I can leverage. My guest today surprised and delighted me when she started our conversation off with her own exploration of belonging and how finding that intrinsic sense of belonging has become a real strength for her while also leveraging her outsider perspective too. Reva Pathwardhan is a coach and facilitator who guides changemakers and leaders working for social change to help them lead with confidence, clarity, and purpose. This conversation had so many high points for me. We kick off with belonging, but we also talk about deep processing, narrowing the scope of our work, noticing, systems, and why slowing down is so important. Raven and I also talk about her experience through the lens of ADHD, as well as her experience as a highly sensitive person. This conversation is rich and useful, whether you're a neurodivergent business owner or not. Reva's experiences lay out a beautiful framework for better understanding yourself and your strengths. And so with that, let's find out what works for Reva Patwarthan. Reva Patwarthan, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, and I am really excited about this conversation. Uh, so let's just jump into the deep end. Sure. You told me that you've thought a lot about how ADHD helps you be a better coach. So let's just go ahead and start there. How do the strengths and adaptations and sort of different ways of operating that come along with ADHD help make you a better coach? I think one of the big things that's given me is it's it's kind of forced me to go on a journey of um, being really okay with being human, mm-hmm. you know. And this, I think, this and like a lot of the strengths when I, because I was, I, I spent some time thinking about this um, when you told me what this interview would be about, and it was actually a lot. It was, I think, I'm a lot more attuned to how it's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, <laughs> it comes a lot more naturally. So I had to dig a bit. Right, it's been a while since I really thought about it, and all the all the strengths I could name, uh, well, a lot of them they were connected to. They had to in order to name them and really own them. I had to be really rooted in a stance of my inherent belonging on this mm-hmm. planet. And you know, I um, I was I had I experienced a lot of trauma um, just from that question of like. I'm broken, I'm not supposed to be here, things don't work for me, so it must be me that's broken. And so I, it really, and I think a lot of humans have that, have some version of that. And because of the way it was showing up for me and because of the way, um, the way it impacted my ability to just function, mm-hmm. um, I had to really go on that journey of getting clear that yes, I do belong here. And once I got clear on I do belong here, it became, you know, well, if I belong here and things aren't working for me, maybe it's not me that's wrong, it's the other stuff. And so I take that attunement with me as a coach. So I work with people mm. most, so I, um, I support the leadership of um, people working for social justice, social impact, most of my clients, not all of them, but most of them are women of color, particularly um, Asian American, Pacific Islander, South Asian women, daughters of immigrants. Um, and so to be able to have that stance with that group of people, 
of like you inherently belong. Mm -hmm. If something is consistently not working, um, that um, you still belong, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's very much tied to my own personal journey that just being wired differently has had me have to go down. Yeah, that that certainly resonates with me. I think the question of belonging is, uh, oh man, it's a really, it's a deep and, and prickly and all sorts of things question. Um, I really appreciate you talking about how you started to notice that if these things weren't consistently working for you or they weren't consistently working for your clients, that that means there's something wrong with the system as opposed to wrong with you. I'm wondering if you could tease that out a little bit more. How do you start to notice where the system is set up in a way that wasn't meant for you or wasn't meant for even a community of people as opposed to, oh, this this is a growth edge that I need to work on? Yeah. Yeah, so I think like I'm really rooted. The thing that I have always found supports transformation is compassion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about pointing the finger or blaming. It's not me. It's the world. It's not about that. Um, And it's really just being, I, I think I work with a lot of people who have habitually internalized the blame, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, and so it's about having, it's about making room for both, right? So we all have the capacity to grow. Um, there's, there's, there's different things that we can be doing, but if we really kind of stand in compassion for both, gosh, this system is broken and hard, right? Gosh, it's hard to be a person with integrity in this kind of, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to be a human here and it's hard for everybody. Right. And what if we let go of the idea of individual brokenness and just look at what needs to change? And maybe it's not always you, you know, and the thing that often needs to change is the idea that I'm broken and I need to change. Like, that's the thing that can transform. That's often the thing that serves a person's ability to just sink down deeper into their leadership um, stand more firmly and say, and more, and just more simply say, these are my needs. These are the things that are, these are the things that, um, I'm seeing, I'm noticing. These are my wants, my preferences. These are my values. So can we collaborate and work on that so they can enter into, in a more empowered way into dialogue and collaboration with the system and with the individuals around them. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're just operating in a more empowered way. So it's not like, so it's like, maybe I need to, there's something I need to change but first with compassion and then I can just be more empowered. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, It strikes me as quite clear that there's some overlap between you helping people see that they are not broken, that they belong, um, and that maybe some of that internalized feeling of not belonging is due to systems that aren't helpful to them and the fact that you support women primarily women of color in social justice movements there seems to be a lot of synergy there where do you see that overlap really happening yeah um yeah to be honest i've dabbled with coaching in like the in tech spaces and Mm -hmm. things like that and it's just it doesn't work as well like and i don't like i have um 
I'm not going to diminish that work. I think it's really important work. And I have dear friends who work in those spaces. And there's a lot of suffering in those spaces. And I wholeheartedly support it. For me, it I, it's like I have to be able to see the, the, the connection soup to nuts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me to really... It's just I, I, it's hard for me to articulate. I just operate better when I'm working in a in a more social impact context because I just get it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I actually was thinking about this a lot. It's like, why do I work in the social impact space? I was really thinking about this recently. Like, so I was, you know, tooling with my business model and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And it's just like, I think it really just comes down to it. Just I just operate better. I do better work in that kind of space. It's just a very pragmatic thing. And because in the and the reason it it operate I operate better is because I can see the links all the way down the line. Does that make yeah, sense? Totally. I yeah. mean it seems like a very tangible way that you're leveraging uh that strength for understanding your own belonging and or kind of the the path that you've had to take to come to terms with your own belonging and supporting people who it's just very aligned in with you know that kind of personal journey that you've been on it makes a ton of sense yeah. for me and i think that it it really kind of illustrates what we're talking about all this month too yeah. um So I don't want to try and like silo different diagnoses or anything like that. But (laughs) you and I had also talked about um, that the fact that you are a highly sensitive person. And while I think lots of people or maybe some people are familiar with the challenges associated around that, I have a feeling that comes with some real solid strengths for you as a coach as well. Can you talk about how um, your sensitivity to the environment, to emotions, to energy, what that looks like? and how how you utilize that as a coach? Yeah, so this is new. This is new Mm. information for me. Um, That I'd heard the term HSP like many years ago. And I think I was just like, nah, you know, that sounds really (laughs) frou-frou. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to deal with it. And also, I was just like, I have already have too many things. Mm-hmm. I have too many things that I identify myself as. And <laughs> so um, I don't need another one right now. Um, but I think some a switch just kind of flipped like a few months ago. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I need to learn about this. So I learned about it. And it's really helped me. I think it's helping me take better care of myself, kind of giving Mm. me some permission around certain things. Like, so some of the characteristics are, um, so you process more slowly and more deeply. Um, So depth of processing, right? So I'm taking in lots of information and it takes me a long time to integrate that information. So if things are coming at me fast and furious, I um, shut down. And I think it has a lot to do with why I became a coach because I operate really well at a slower pace Mm -hmm. and coaching conversations. It's like a lot of what I'm doing is I'm just creating space to slow down. Right. Mm, And so the, the, what goes along with the depth of processing is overwhelm, the experience of overwhelm. Mm -hmm. Right. So lots of, so sensitivity to lots of sound, lots of, you know, feeling the emotions in the room, just noticing people's micro expressions, just it can feel like a lot. So knowing that and just having and just reading the science behind it just helped me, I think, stand a little bit more firmly in my understanding that I can set limits for myself, that I can 
I can that it's okay to say I need a break. It's also helped me, I think, become a little bit more disciplined in how I in the the ways I mess with myself mm. and the ways I mess with my own schedule, the self-imposed, the cell phones, <laughs> right? Like the um, so it's helping me get clear, like, how do I do the best, my best work, right? And there, 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 there's a certain amount of, you know, in our culture, the obsession with productivity, you know, um, always kind of pushing for more, you know, to the extent of like the biohacking, which I kind of dabble in myself, but still. Sure. (laughs) Yes, same, and I can also roll my eyes at it. Yes. Right. So, um, yeah, so the so it's just it's like, yeah, I I don't have to constantly push at my edge. And actually, Mm -hmm. maybe what my edge is, is in narrowing scope and deepening. That's where Mm. my edge is, is allowing myself the permission to do that. And so that's actually been happening. So I've been cutting back on my work hours to accommodate the rest of my life, which has plenty of other stuff going on. Um, and I've been finding I focus better in the hours that I do work, right? So it's really just simple stuff like that that I think I was avoiding doing. And then when I was reading, it's like, oh, this is my temperament, right? So uh, being HSP, it's not like... Um, I don't think it's considered really neurodivergence um, mm-hmm. because 20% of people are highly sensitive. So that's just a lot of people. Right? That is a it's, lot of it's, people. It's considered within the realm of, the realm of typical, you know, I'm putting yeah. quotes. So, um, but it's not a favored trait. Right. Right. So that's where that's, that's taken me. Yeah. We'll hear more from Reva in just a minute, but first... A word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by the What Works Network. We wanted to take a look back at everything we've accomplished at the What Works Network over the last year. And honestly, even though we've been living it, we were pretty astonished. Here's a quick look at what we discovered. Members came together in 104 events, including 42 Monday huddles, 12 hot seat coaching sessions, 12 flash masterminds, and four virtual conferences that themselves included over 20 hours of live programming. Our members downloaded recordings of these events 3,489 times. 90% of our members are active, and over 80% of our members have been in business five years or longer. There were 2,184 posts and articles posted, 60% of which were generated by members. On those posts, there were 14,927 comments and over 34,000 cheers. We've released three new programs and resources as part of our membership, The Commitment Blueprint, Subtle, and The Stronger Business Playbook with 24 tools and templates. We've led members through 12 deep dives and sent 50 members-only newsletters with recaps of top conversations and additional learning. And our community advocate, Shannon Paris, conducted almost 70 one-on-one sessions with members. Now, one post, comment, event, or even a deep dive can feel like a small thing, but over the course of the year, it adds up to a culture of continual learning, a practice of improvement, and a gratitude for progress over perfection. 
And that's really what building stronger businesses together is all about. There's nothing magical, no sure thing, no formulas. There's just the regular practice of learning, sharing, and experimenting to find what works. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be opening the What Works Network to new members for the last time at our current price. When the doors close, the price will double. Now, we've heard over and over again how valuable being part of the What Works Network is, and we believe it's time for our membership fee to match that value. So if you've been thinking about joining the What Works Network this month, it's go time. Be sure to sign up at explorewhatworks.com slash network to get notified when membership opens up. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. It is the perfect time to simplify your business and your life. Creating content, building a movement, and leading a community, well, it's hard work. But it doesn't have to mean hassling with a host of software services, social media platforms, and customer management systems. Mighty Networks is the simple way to bring people together, deliver high-quality content, and spread your message, all while making your business easier to run to. Mighty Networks combines key functions like building a community, online course management, content creation, networking, events, and payment processing so that you have an all-in-one platform for running your business. We use Mighty Networks to power the What Works Network. We offer behind-the-scenes look at podcast interviews, host members-only events, help members support each other, and facilitate ongoing conversations about important topics. It is so much simpler than the collection of apps we'd cobbled together before. Start simplifying your life and business while providing a top-notch experience to your customers with Mighty Networks. Get started free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. I love that you describe a component of it as the of deeper processing depth of processing and i'm wondering if like in coaching i think some people have the expectation that you hire a coach and they're going to tell you what to do or they're going to hire a coach you're going to hire a coach they're going to listen to you talk about your thing they're maybe they ask you some questions but then they're going to kind of process for you what you need to do. And I have a feeling you are doing more like processing with, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if that distinction feels resonant to you. Yeah, that really does feel resonant. I think it's like, I have never thought about it in those terms. Um, But yeah, I think that what I am doing is I am, I am listening very closely. Mm -hmm. I am, processing and mirroring back so that my client can clarify. Yeah, it's very much a partnership. It's very much a partnership where we're processing together. And because um, because I'm playing, I think part of what happens is I'm paying very close attention. I'm listening for nuance. I'm listening for um, the emotional tone and the, the undercurrents that are the I'm looking for the developmental threads and the the undercurrents of meaning that run under it, and then I'm mirroring that back. And then um, I think what starts to happen over time, and I hope what starts to happen over time, is the client starts to be able to do this for themselves because I'm mm-hmm. teaching them how to listen to themselves the way that I'm listening to them. Mm. So more and more, I think it does become a partnership. And you know, um, just recently I had a client who. Um, 
she started to basically um, her she was starting to really lead the coaching sessions a lot more. She was starting to give herself assignments and things like that. And, you know, it was great, right? It was great because it's like, this is, I think this is my, this what kind of how I hold a goal um, mm-hmm. that people can start to learn how to do that for themselves after working with me for a bit. Yeah. It's so great, I think, too, to have those kinds of metrics metrics of success that are maybe only metrics of success to you. Like maybe the client doesn't even notice that this thing has happened, but you notice it and you can say, yep, okay, it worked this time. I used to feel that way about retreats. Like if people cried, even though I was highly uncomfortable with it, I felt successful. Like, (laughs) oh, you cried. Excellent. (laughs) Check. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And when it does happen, I'm like, look at what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Notice you, notice the skill that you're building, right? Yeah. So it yeah. can become more, even more intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And as you were kind of talking through processing with people, I was also thinking like, you're allowing their like maybe they've only processed something at a superficial level but in working with you you invite them into that deeper level of processing as well yes yeah yeah that's so cool um okay i want to talk about some of the maybe structural or process adaptations that you've made Mm -hmm. um, because i've been thinking a lot about how neurodivergence among many other things um, sort of inevitably leads to us making adaptations in the way we work and the way we structure our businesses um, and that those adaptations are often one of the ways that we really leverage our strengths so can you tell us about some of the adaptations that you've made for yourself either as a coach or as a business owner yeah I think that since uh, I've started being self-employed basically where I'm my own boss I don't even know what's an adaptation anymore Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just how I do it (laughs) Um, I think I am a systems geek by necessity Mm -hmm. right so one of the things that comes to mind is like when I first um, so I have really a really bad sense of direction very very terrible sense of direction I can get lost you know, if I walk into a store and then I walk out, I don't necessarily know which way to walk to go back where I came oh, from. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get turned around very easily. So when I first moved out to the Bay Area, um, this was back when there was no GPS, there was no, there's no phone that would tell me where to go. Um, so, but there was MapQuest. So what I would do is I would go and I would look it up. I would print out the the, d- the directions, but I knew that I would probably still get lost. So I'd always have maps in the car with me. So this was mm-hmm. all this planning ahead and this would even be for places that I'd been to before so I had a whole system that I developed for to be like basically be my external brain mm-hmm. you know um, you, you had when we were first talking about doing or when we were first pinging back and forth about doing this interview you were like how does this make you a better business owner or business person right so mm-hmm. and I, I was thinking about how I've had to learn how to do that. And we have all this wonderful technology now around, we think about the externalized brain, our phone is our externalized brain. And I was thinking like, I think, I don't think Apple invented that. I think that people with ADHD invented that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny. I was just listening to the Ezra Klein show this morning and he was talking to Annie 
Paul Murphy about her book, The Extended Mind, which I have not read yet. It's in my Kindle waiting for me. Um, but I listened to this interview and it's uh, she's talking about a lot of the same things in, ter- in terms of externalizing the what we need to yeah. thrive and what yeah. we need to uh, actually externalizing the things that we need so that we can think better. Yes. So I, I would love to hear about some of the systems that you have built into your business, whether you can necessarily say, oh, yeah, that's the ADHD or oh, yeah, that's the that's the H- HSP over there. Um, is there a particular system that you're like really proud of yeah. that is at work in your business? Yeah, like I, I really, it, over the course of a few years, I have um, put together a system for onboarding clients for managing their engagement for clarifying goals to kind of keeping me on task of like, what step are we at right now? Um, You know, when are we doing reviews and then and then the process of closing them out. And this is something I've developed all in Google Docs. Oh, (laughs) because it's, you know, Um, and um, just I've learned to keep that that it's important for me to keep things simple because I can I can go down a rabbit hole like a notion rabbit hole, I can totally do it. But um, yeah, so it's just, it's just all in Google Docs. I like have, I have one notes page that is a template and it has mm-hmm. all the links a person will need in it. It has all the sections we'll need. It has, it's, it's where I'll track and structure our notes for the engagement. Um, and it links out to where their practices are gonna be and where they're, you know, so it just, it's just a whole, it's a whole system, right? And a whole web of Google Docs that hopefully is pretty user-friendly for people. Um, and it's not that it couldn't be better, but it's more that I'm just constantly been iterating on it and tweaking it as I go in little little ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I already, I already know some of the next things I want to do to make it a little bit quicker to onboard people, a little bit less work. Um, but it's very much like externalizing my brain because it's like mm-hmm. I keep forgetting to tell people when we're at the end close getting close to the end of our engagement and so what that means is we end up rushing the close so what do Mm -hmm. i how do i handle that right um and every time i onboard somebody i keep forgetting where i keep my contract templates and i keep forgetting (laughs) where (laughs) you know i spend way too much time on this how how do i handle this right it's that and i've set up like I use in Gmail, you can um, set up templates, email templates. Mm -hmm. So I have an onboarding email template. I have a closing email template. Um, Yeah. So I use, I use that quite a bit because it's just like, it take, it's just the mental work of recrafting this email and making sure I'm hitting all the steps because each one has like a checklist of things, right? So I don't have to reinvent it. And every time I open it up and use it, I end up tweaking it and adding something, which is fine, but that I'm building rather than reinventing right. every time. Yeah, so it sounds like you're paying special attention to the things that you forget and, <laughs> or lose or, or yeah. you know, the ends up in the pile yeah. and uh, incorporating that into your system in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, how much of it is automated and how much of it's manual at this point? Oh, it's all manual right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's, you know, there's a couple reminders. I actually dabbled in like automating things like um, like having setting up um, 
uh, auto emails to just come in to remind me, but it just it wasn't working. So I still need to I still need to fiddle with some of that stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I have certainly. I, I know a bunch of uh, neurodivergent people who. Um, really lean heavily on automation for the exact same reason. Um, I enjoy the idea of automation and I enjoy making it work, um, but it is always something that I spend more time tinkering with than yeah. is valuable yeah. to me. Um, it saves some very particular uses. So I, yeah, yeah. I love manual. Um, yeah, oh, it's like somehow like I will ignore an email if I think it came from a robot even if it was me that told the robot to send me that email. <laughs> Preach, yes. <laughs> this is why I can't use Asana, because I don't care that the thing is red now, because the, the robot decided that the thing is I red. I didn't decide that. Who are you to red. tell me what to do, robot? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I only listen to myself. It's kind of a problem. Yeah, but only present me, not past me or future me. No. <laughs> I've gotten a lot better about thinking about future me, <laughs> but but yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, let's see. Where do I want to go next? I I would actually, I'd love to hear a little bit more on sort of the actual work that you do with your clients. You've told us who they are and kind of where they work, but are there particular things that you really specialize in when it comes to coaching? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so I'm also a facilitator and trainer. What am I specializing in these days? <laughs> um, one of the things I've been noticing um, lately is um, I've been doing a lot of work around helping people own their values and priorities more. Mm-hmm. So that so it's this piece of just the folks I work with are doing so many jobs at once. They often have just a lot flying at them. And they are doing the work because they really, really, really care about it. Mm-hmm. Like it's a real heart's desire. Um, and so it can be really hard to set boundaries and say no. And so what happens when they aren't able to set boundaries and say no, the things that really matter to them get, get pushed to the wayside. So this process of saying, well, these are actually the things that I care about. And are these things reflected in my day-to-day work? No, right? So recognizing that it's not, and then entering into the process of changing that. So entering into the process of what conversations do I need to have? How do I need to restructure my day? What works for me? What doesn't work for me? What pieces do I need to let go? And those are not small processes. So it's like, okay, so I need to really start a conversation with my board of directors around this whole funding piece. I think we need to start phasing this whole funding, um, this whole funding partnership out, right? Um, so there's a foundation that's really been driving our, our programs in a way that I think is not aligned with where I think we need to be going. That's a big question. How do we mm-hmm. grapple with that? So the way, where it all starts though, it's like this whole, um, it's a, where it all starts is the process of, how, how closely am I listening to myself? How closely am I listening to my values? How closely am I listening to my instincts about what's working and what's not working? And um, how much am I really 
opening up possibility for collaborating with other people who may have different ideas, different values, but they're here. And so I work with them, right? So how do I open up those spaces for collaboration instead of hiding it, instead of working around it? Mm. How do you do those things for yourself? So I work a lot with um, helping people connect with the body and the reason, mm. and that's, that's what I've done with myself. That's a big part of um, a part of how I work. So um, for me, um, I had to undo a lot of trauma I was holding and let, and learn to release that. And so more, more and more deeply, I can pause, turn inward and say, okay, there's something, there's something that feels off here. What is that? And just listen. And that's where it all starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, This is also related to that podcast episode that I was listening to this morning as well. And I kept getting hung up on uh, both Ezra Klein and Annie Murphy Paul or Annie Paul Murphy talking about um, listening to their bodies, but giving it language before it really felt like sensation to me, like turning kind of almost giving it like an emotional heuristic before they'd actually they weren't naming that they were listening to a particular sensation, right? Right. And I'm I'm curious if that's something that you've run into as well, because I know for myself, like listening to my body, it's something I want to do. Yeah. And I also know that my brain will get ahead of my body and say, oh, that's that thing that you're feeling, well, that's stress, or that's, you're feeling uneasy, or you're, it's like, no, 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 there's a sensation there yes. at the bottom of that. Can you, yeah. this is, it's clearly just a personal question now for me. Um, but do you have a way of like thinking through uh, or feeling through actually getting to the piece of information that's going to be most valuable to you that yeah. your body is giving you? Yeah. I, the thing that you're pointing to really comes down to, I believe, is velocity, pacing. Like, mm. What is the pace of your life? What is, um, how fast do you move through things? How fast does your mind work and your body work? And um, because the conversation, that kind of conversation with the self, with the body, often needs to happen at a slower pace than what we're really used to operating at. So it's like, okay, so I've named the emotion and I'm moving on, right? (laughs) Okay, so now I know, (laughs) I'm annoyed, moving on. Actually, I just have to say, as you're talking about like the pace of which, uh, the pace of your life, the p- how fast you are you moving? I'm like, I am. Sean tells me to slow down all the time. Like, I am just, I just move fast. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So I'm just really laughing to myself. But yeah. please go on. Yeah, and I want to say like my particular wiring, like as someone with ADHD, and and I know a lot of people with ADHD are fast, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and someone who's um, HSP, because there's some who are the inattentive type, where tend to be a little bit dreamier. Um, I think like I am wired to advocate for slowness. Like that's mm. part of one of the things that I'm here to do is to just advocate for the value. Um, the value of slowing down because there's so much richness, so much truth. It's great. It's great to slow down. And um, it's like that saying, in order to move more quickly, sometimes we have to slow down. That has been the truth, true for me very much. I have accomplished so much more, been so much more productive because I've, 
I'm in this process of learning how to allow myself to slow down. Right. So, yeah. So you, so you, so we get to that, that place of, yeah, I've, I've identified this emotion and now that's enough. So, okay. So what's happening there that has you feeling like you need to go now. Right. So then turn to that, turn Mm -hmm. towards that. There's like a habit of moving away. That's enough. Move along. So can we turn towards that? So what is that? Can we slow down and sit with that need for speed, that need to move on? And that's interesting. So it's just that getting very interesting. It is. It's like really super interesting. So let's get curious about this, you know, because it's not it's not even just personal. It's like there is um, something cultural. There's something embedded in humanity around this. And that's fascinating. Like, just yes. look, it's here in your personal direct experience. You can get a, a direct taste of it. Look at it with wonder and awe and just check that out and just be there with it. And then that will just continue to deepen into something. Hmm. Well, that is going to have me sitting with that for quite a while. (laughs) Um, As we wrap up here, there was one other thing that I I wanted to make sure to hit with you, and that is sort of your intersecting identities of neurodivergence and being a woman of color and supporting women of color. I guess my question here is not really fully formed, but I'm curious about the intersection of those identities and how that intersection influences you, influences your work, influences how you work with other people. Yeah, it's one of those things that's like, it's hard to say where one thing ends and the other one begins, but I know that they're all big influences on how I experience life. And... You know, one of the things is, I think that the experience of being different, um, whether that's a visible difference or an invisible difference, um, it kind of puts you outside the system, which can have its advantages, mm-hmm. right? It's there's, there's things that I think that if I were more typical, like the, the obsessions with you know, and the, the very rigid notions of what success is supposed to look like and the, the whole notion that one must be successful in order to have worth, the rigid notions around that. It's not that I don't get caught up in that because I do um, big time, but I also have this way that I've been able to stand a little bit outside of that because those images were not built for me. They don't, they just, mm. there's no way to make them work for me, right? So, you know, I have this, I haven't, said this in public before, um, but I, a phrase I use with friends sometimes is um, the idea of white polish. I like, um, like it's this, this, that things must be polished, like our hair, especially women. Uh, it's like mm-hmm. our hair must be polished, our clothes, like getting the, the lip liner and the eyeliner just like really on point, you know, and the way we present each other. Don't say, um, you know, the, the, all that kind of stuff um, in there. I said it uh, <laughs> and it's totally fine. <laughs> It you know the idea totally <laughs> the idea that we have to be polished mm-hmm. in order to be presentable and it's funny it's like i look at social media and it's like how far have we come from the 50s like given how much we're still paying attention to the way we look yeah. you know the way we present ourselves and i know and i want to say i want to make room for the fact that there are people who get genuine joy 
out of playing with makeup and clothes and all that. And I love it. I love it. And I think it's pretty. I, I enjoy looking at it. But the expectation that one must be polished to be out in the world. And so I call it white polish because it's this, it is, I think that's one mm-hmm. place where the intersection shows up. Like, I can't emulate that because I'm not white. But if I, but some of that is I can't emulate it because of my brain. Yeah. <laughs> It's just I'm not wired to be polished. And um, and so I see it. I think I see it more clearly because of that. Mm. And because I've learned that I still belong. Yes. Well, that is a beautiful place to end, coming full circle on belonging. And, um, yeah, Reva, thank you so much for sharing your strengths with us and giving us um, a really fascinating perspective on noticing and getting to know ourselves a little bit better. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. There is so much in this conversation that I'd like to further unpack with you. But I think the questions I'm thinking about most after talking to Reva are her questions about pace. She said, what is the pace of your life? How fast are you moving? As I mentioned, Sean often tells me to slow down. I walk fast, I talk fast, I write fast, and I frenetically speed around the house for no good reason. And Rave is right. As long as I keep moving fast, I can't feel anything. And maybe that's why I developed that speed in the first place. Moving fast numbs the fear, alleviates a bit of the anxiety, makes me feel marginally safer. But speed isn't a life hack. And I don't want to miss out on the things that speed prevents me from experiencing and knowing. So I'm going to try slowing down more and numbing less. And I'd love to know if you do too. You can find out more about Reva Putrarden at greatergoodcoaching.com. Next week, I'm sharing a conversation with writer Chris Windley. We first aired this conversation last fall, but it's a conversation that stuck with me and actually helped to catalyze some pretty huge shifts for me personally over the last year. So I wanted to share it with you again, along with what I've learned and shifted since. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. And Sean McMullen attends to our garden of podcasts with love and fertilizer every day. <laughs>